Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Have you been trying to keep up with the medical literature, but you don't have time, don't know where to start, and you'd like someone to do the legwork for you? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scour the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, journal junkies. You poor, poor things. You must have thought we abandoned you. Two long months without the sound of our angelic croaks and without finding out the latest and greatest in medical literature. We, um, we actually had a, a short summer holiday. Whilst I drank wine in France and then got COVID and had to isolate for ages, John wrote his thesis and is planning the wedding. Yeah, not, not our wedding, just to be clear. But also we didn't do any of those things together. Oh, go true. on holiday together. So I made that very clear. If we had a we- <laughs> if we had a wedding, it'd be wonderful. But anyway, anyway, um, and actually on that note, John, I uh, I understand you've just got back from your stag do like this morning or last night was it? Yeah, got back last night. Um, how, how you doing? How you feeling? I've dragged myself to the microphone. Yeah, I'm feeling okay. I'm hoping one of you guys has um, got out some sort of randomized control trial on how to cope with a hangover. And sort of beer-related anxiety, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I think years of medical school, um, many things were tried. I think for me, there I did a homeopathy uh, module at medical school, and uh, there was something called Nux Vomica, which uh, I remember this homeopathy doctor insisting would work really well. And uh, I think I think it just made me feel worse. Yeah, that's well, what I do I find that glasses of water improve things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, also keep, keep it simple, uh, Dave. Keep it simple. Is it legal to have a homeopathy module? What is it legal? Is it legal? It was then. It was then in, in Liverpool. Yeah, as it was. In your medical school, they had homeopathy module. Yeah, yeah. And um, that was the only module I ever did really badly in because at the end I was like, there really isn't much evidence for this. And he, he gave me a terrible mark. I was like, why? It's actually quite I wrote a quite good essay. He, but he just didn't like the fact that I was slagging off homeopathy. So there we go. He was my first ever PBL tutor. Was that he? Tells you how, tells you the start I got to my medical career. That's amazing. <laughs> that voice, by the way, listeners, that 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 there is Dave, and um, four octaves lower than ours. Yeah, and he's got a you know much nicer voice. He's got a nice smooth voice, isn't he? Anyway, anyway, listeners, before we get on to Dave, don't worry, we are back and we are better than ever, or at least just as good. <laughs> Maybe slightly worse. We're a bit rusty. Um, But in the meantime, we have been creating a rather excellent Climate Zone series, which um, I'm pretty excited about. John, do you want to? Yep, absolutely, Barney. If you, like many others, are thinking more about the climate crisis and want to get up to scratch and figure out what you as a healthcare professional can do about it, then go have a listen. And whilst we've been out feeling the heat with the Climate Zone, our journal spotting team missed out on the unlocking summer of fun to create a huge pile of articles for us to run through. To help us digest this feast of medical literature, we've borrowed one of the brilliant hosts from the Royal College of Emergency Medicine's podcast, David McCreary. If you haven't listened to their podcast, check it out. And whilst it's A&E focused, it does cover a huge variety of medical topics and in quite a lot of style, as you can hear from Dave's voice. (laughs) David, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you are and how uh, you and I know each other? Uh, yeah, thanks for having me, guys, and hello, medics. Um, let's see a bit about <laughs> myself. <laughs> it's just, you know, the medical population. Hello, guys. Uh, a bit about myself. I'm an ED consultant working in the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne in Australia. Uh, my training was a bit of a convoluted mash between the UK and Australian training systems and a lot of air miles for exams. And while I've been out here in Australia, I've done some retrieval medicine up in the Northern Territory and worked as a uh, ED and done a bit of gen med in rural uh, South Australia for about 18 months before coming back to the Alfred. I've got some specialist interests in critical care, trauma, evidence-based medicine, and particularly medical education. And I've just completed a, a fellowship in medical education at the Alfred. And yeah, and I am one of the hosts of the Arcane Learning podcast with my partner in crime, Andy Neal, who um, is one of the OGs of FOMED. So you guys have actually got the dud out of the partnership today, I'm afraid. Oh, what? <laughs> who organized oh, this? That's he, outrageous. <laughs> Andy's the first guy that, that actually published the term FOMED in an article, and I just cling to his coattails. So, you know, Did he really? thanks for having me. Oh, instead. well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Next time, next time. 
Um, yeah, basically, guys, uh, Dave occasionally on our WhatsApp group would just send over like photos of him with like a helicopter roaring in the background and him in full gear looking very cool. I hate to admit it, but looking very cool and very smug about it as well. I was, um, I was trying to think of some anecdotes about Dave um, and most of them are probably inappropriate because they're from Union Day, so I won't go there. But um, a medical one, perhaps. Dave, do you remember back in back in Liverpool? We we, we didn't work to, with each other that much, but there was um, we we're working in in Western Hospital, I think it was, and I was uh, on call for medicine, and you were doing your medicine block there, and I was carrying the arrest fleet, and basically there was two arrests, so was, yeah, almost simultaneous, and so I was like, okay, I'll I'll, I'll get the first one. You very kindly um, opted to take the second one, so off we trotted, and I came back very quickly because mine was some vasovagal, which was in no way interesting. And back you came, having had, having had to, I think you had to change your clothes because you were the yeah. first person to arrive at a jumper off the top of the car park. Who was the poor guy was in pieces, and you were just trying to piece him together. And um, anyway, yeah, that sounds about right. That, thanks for, thanks that for taking normal, that for me. <laughs> isn't that just a normal day in medicine? No, normal day in medicine. You know what? I was so pleased. I was like, I would have been absolutely useless. Um, a good thing an ED registrar went there instead of a. Uh, an SHO who was just about to do his paces. So anyway, thanks for that. It was a nice way to break up. It was a nice way to break up the ward round of old ladies what fell over with UTIs. Absolutely, absolutely. It also sounds like your careers have gone in a similar direction to that story. So yeah, <laughs> start early. Listen, I think we'll probably move very swiftly on. John, um, can you tell us what we have in store for our journal spotting? listeners today yeah we've got loads to catch up on so some important covid19 updates on vaccines and anticoagulation then we're talking d-dimers thrombosis in pregnancy smoking cessation bridging with delta parin lower back pain coffee and arrhythmias and a little bit more so as always uh, please rate us on apple podcasts follow us on social media and share the podcast with all your friends all your contacts yes even your father's brothers nephews cousins former roommates they need to get up to date with the medical journals too now barney you are up first with the most pressing issue of the day COVID zone updates. What have you got for us? Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, um, if you're in England and definitely if you're in Australia, you'll be more than aware COVID is on the up. Um, more and more people high flow, more and more people CPAP. And with that, there's uh, quite a lot of updates and medicine going around. So one thing is still very clear about COVID. It is shit. So let me start with a recent modelling study published in The Lancet which looked at mortality and fertility rate data globally to estimate how many children have lost caregivers. They worked out that about 1,364,000 children have lost at least one primary caregiver to COVID, such as a parent. A total of nine countries had a caregiver death rate affecting more than one in a thousand children, including places like the USA, Brazil and South Africa, which is obviously where Dave is right now. Yeah, gosh, this is a cheery way to start the podcast. Dave, I hear Australia is getting hit pretty hard currently. How are things down there? Yeah, we're currently in lockdown 6.0, lockdown harder. We've got curfew and five-kilometer five limits and even closed playgrounds for a while there. It was all starting to look a little bit dystopian. Uh, we're definitely starting to feel the effects of the current wave in, in ED. We've got a lot of sick positives coming in, and yeah, I think we are in for a rough couple of months. Oh, mate, yeah. good luck with it. It's... Um... You know, there's obviously it's absolutely awful and it's going to, unfortunately, it's probably going to get more awful, isn't it? So good luck with it. All right. Are you guys aware of the Zoe COVID app by any chance? Yep. Yeah. Heard it, heard it mentioned a few times. Okay. Well, look, it's got about, about 5 million users in the UK who monitor their symptoms and positive case rates. And it's over the, you know, in the months, it's come up with a few interesting facts. Um, one of which was including how eating a plant-rich diet seems to confer some protection against COVID, although of course there are probably quite a few confounders here, which I won't go into. But one interesting and probably less biased area of data is the symptoms that people are reporting. So gone are the simple days of continuous cough, whatever the hell that means, <laughs> loss of smell or fever as your three primary COVID symptoms. Yeah, those are so 2020. Yeah, absolutely. The Delta variant is here and is keeping the not-so-dead COVID donkey buckarooing. So, if you have not been vaccinated, your top five presenting symptoms are headache, sore throat, runny nose, fever, and persistent cough. So, not too dissimilar to previous, but that's, and that's if you've not been vaccinated. 
And if you are doubly vaccinated, the top five are headache, runny nose, sneezing, sore throat, and loss of smell, which is exactly what I had when I had COVID a few weeks back and corresponds well to what I'm seeing in hospital too. So the idea is that if you've been vaccinated, it kind of stays as a sort of upper respiratory tract thing. But if you've not been vaccinated, it implies it goes more into the chest and you're more likely to get very unwell with it. And like a year or so ago, that mild head cold you have, I'm sorry, it definitely could be COVID. So stop procrastinating by listening to podcasts and uh, get, get swabbed. Very good advice, Barney. And I'm glad you've recovered and now have an intimate knowledge of the Delta variant. So that's very good. You've also got another paper for us to back up your own personal experience, I think. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, on, on the topic of the Delta variant, I'm uh, I'm sure you've seen in the news how the vaccines look effective against this overall. Uh, yeah, well, I have to level you there, Barney. I am definitely trying not to follow the news too much. Organising a 100-person wedding um, means that tracking daily updates about COVID is incredibly anxiety-inducing. So I've stopped. <laughs> Good. Well done. Well, I can look. Well, I can reassure you, I'm not going to rain on your vaccine parade. In a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine, both Pfizer and AstraZeneca showed good effectiveness at stopping symptomatic disease with the Delta variant at 88% and 67% respectively, but only if you've been double vaccinated. This is only slightly less effective than against the original Alpha variant. A single vaccine, however, only had about half this effectiveness. Unfortunately, the study didn't give us information about how it affects the risk of hospitalization or need for ITU, but I think the population data has seen a clear reduction in these factors despite high rates of infection, which will be largely due to vaccines and the age of people catching it. Nice one, Barney. So we've gone a bit of modelling, bit of Delta variant, bit of vaccination. I think you've got one more for us. Yeah, now this, this is the sort of the big one, which is still causing a lot of controversy. So this is anticoagulation and COVID. This has been a, a constant source of bloody discussion throughout COVID over the last couple of years. Uh, you can go back and listen to our episode, um, episode 14 with Professor Beverly Hunt back then when we went through it in detail. But I think quite a lot's changed since. It does seem like there's plenty of questions still unanswered, despite, I don't know, millions of people having had COVID around the globe. Um, are you any closer to any solid answers for me? Yeah, look, it's a good question, Dave. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it? It's been so long. It feels like it's been so long and so many people. So what we know. The rate of VTE, venous thromboembolism, in hospitalized COVID patients is 14%. And this goes up when they go into ICU. Previous studies uh, with names such as inspiration, rapid, action, came up with varied results. In summary, in ICU, intermediate dosing had more risk than benefit. There was possibly a lower risk of death at 28 days with therapeutic dosing in non-ICU patients. And Rivaroxban had no benefit over prophylactic low molecular weight heparin. Okay, tell me more. The, the study I'm going to focus on today, published in the New England Journal of Medicine again, combined the data from three multinational studies, the randomized controlled trial ACTIVE-4A and two adaptive platform trials, ATTACK, that's A-T-T-A-C-C, and our old friend, REMAP-CAP. They assessed therapeutic versus prophylactic anticoagulation in 2,200 non-critically ill patients and 1,200 ICU patients. Okay, that's pretty decent numbers and a nice mix of ICU and non-ICU. So what did they find? In ICU, therapeutic anticoagulation did not improve the primary outcome of days without organ support or survival, but was associated with more major bleeding complications, and that was 3.8% uh, versus 2.3%. However, now this is the key part of this, in the moderately unwell patients, there was a benefit. 80% of those on therapeutic dosing did not need organ support compared to 76% on prophylactic dosing. So wait, you're about 4% more, more likely to need organ support if you had prophylactic dosing. Yeah. In the moderately unwell non-ICU patients, you, um, you did better on therapeutic anticoagulation. Right. So okay. as expected, there was an increase in major bleeding with the with the higher dose at 1.9% compared to 0.9%. So not massive numbers, but still significant. The authors, though, calculated that for every 1,000 patients in the moderate group started on treatment dose low molecular heparin compared to prophylactic, you could save about 40 lives. So any thoughts on why the ICU patients didn't benefit? Well, in short, it's, it's really not clear. Um, there are some theories going out there. I mean, perhaps they are so sick that their prothrombotic state is resistant to anticoagulation. 
I mean, it's certainly possible, but far from certain. Now, the headlines sound quite convincing from the trials, but it really isn't as cut and dry as we might like. First thing, of the 13,000 people screened, some 10,000 were excluded for multiple reasons, such as already having a suspected clot or having a high bleeding risk. So if they were suspected PE, they excluded them? Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure you guys have seen this, but I know that in the majority of clarkings for sick, hypoxic COVID patients, PE was on the differential. So I really suspect that excluding these patients would have affected the data. How can we therefore apply this to our real world patients? Next, the mix of studies from multiple countries meant that there was considerable differences in the dosing of the anticoagulants, including some places using intermediate dosing. Essentially, the figures get a little bit murky, a little bit muddy. So with a relatively small improvement in mortality, coupled with a small but significant rate of major bleeding, is this data enough to change our management? What do you think, Sid? What do you think, guys? To be honest, I'm not looking after enough COVID sick patients at the minute to have much um, experience to, to yeah, sure. No, give interesting. you an answer. I'll ask me again in a couple of months and I might I might have a better answer. For Maybe you. in a couple of weeks, um, Dave. <laughs> the the um, one thing I am the... seeing from all this data is it just keeps, it, it flip-flops. You, you, you think you understand what's going on with coagulation in COVID and then someone does another study and then you know nothing. Yeah, absolutely. It's so complicated, which is why I'm going to speak to one of the experts. What, I was going to ask what the um, what the odds ratio was on the um, survival benefit, because I think I've read this trial and I don't think it's very big. And given that they've excluded so many patients, I mean, I don't know if this is, this is enough evidence to necessarily be giving everyone therapeutic anticoagulation. It seems like we're going to watch this space, aren't we, and wait for the guidelines. I think that sounds fair enough. Let's let's press on then. Let's go away from the COVID zone. Let's go back into the wonderful world of sexy medicine. And we've got we're covering a few D-dimer trials and evidence now with you guys. Dave, I think you're going to start us off. Yeah, tell us about age-adjusted D-dimers. Yeah. So while we're on the topic of thrombosis, I have a paper from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine that looked at age-adjusting D-dimers. Now, the concept of age-adjusting D-dimer, that is increasing the cutoff of what a negative value is based on the age of your patient, has been around for a while now. I think it was probably first suggested in 2013. And since then, it's slowly been making its way into practice. But my experience is that it hasn't really been widely accepted just yet. What about you guys? Are you using it in the UK? Um, There's a lot of talk about it. And that's mainly by me. I think it's a very useful thing, um, but it's not in our, say, our trust guidance. It's not in the national guidance. So it hasn't been sort of fully adapted yet. We're still using this sort of 500 cutoff, which I think is is probably wrong. I've seen a lot more people calculate the ages of a D-dimer as part of their clerking or something, but I haven't seen it being used by a lab. So this will be interesting to see what the results are. Yeah. Are they calculating it, writing it down and then saying, but I'm ordering the CTPA anyway? Oh, yeah, abso- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've already ordered They're, it. Yeah, they've already yeah. ordered it. They don't even care. It's just, just, uh, yeah, it just makes them look clever. <laughs> so this paper looks at whether changing your official lab reported cutoff value to an age-adjusted D-dimer level, and in this case, it was the age times 0.01 for patients over 50, would reduce the imaging for PE and as a secondary outcome, whether they would miss any PEs by doing that. Just to say, Dave, in UK, usually it's the age times 10. So uh, we go for 500 rather than, what is it, 0.5? Is that yours? Yeah. So they performed a retrospective cohort study uh, looking across six hospital EDs, and they looked at the data for 18 months prior to and then 18 months post the change in the, the lab reporting of D-dimer. They found a 5.4% reduction in positive D-dimers and then a subsequent 4.4% reduction in PE imaging, which were both significant. And that equates to 1,100 scans across their six hospitals. Safety-wise, they found that one missed PE in the new negative group, and that was a subsegmental PE in a 65-year-old who had a D-dimer of 0.55 or 550 in UK language. Uh, they worked, also worked out the test characteristics for age-adjusted D-dimer. They found that when you did this, the sensitivity dropped from 96.7% down to 96.1%, but the specificity increased from 526 to 58.2%. It sounds pretty promising, Dave, although there was that just that one, that one missed subsegmental PE. And of course, the questions then you know, come up as actually, is that even relevant? What are you going to take away from this? Well, the authors concluded that this shows that lab reporting age-adjusted D-dimer results in a significant decrease in imaging without an impact on safety. 
They also mentioned in the discussion that this is likely going to have an impact on ED length of stay and ED throughput, uh, though they haven't actually measured those in this study. My thoughts are that the that this approach of changing the reporting values of what is abnormal is a good way for age-adjusted D-dimer to gain more traction, and clinicians are probably going to be more comfortable using it if their hospital has decided to support its use like this. And while it's a modest reduction in imaging, I think it could be of even more benefit in the UK where these patients, at least in my day, would be sent to the medics for their subsequent CTPA, which might not have happened until the next day, and then they'd get treatment dose clexin until then. And so this wouldn't just be reducing imaging, it would be reducing medical admissions, so less clerkings for you guys. And those are far more resource intensive than just doing a scan, and also might reduce the use of unnecessary anticoagulation in the meantime. Now in Australia, it would be slightly less of an impact because we just get the scan done in ED and generally withhold anticoagulation until we find the result, unless there's going to be a significant delay to scan and we don't involve you medics in it at all because it's you medics, you slow, boring medics. Um, you're right, Dave. I think it depends on where you work and, you know, how often they get to CTPA overnight and things. And also we have this ambulatory care pathway now, which means it's a little bit less, uh, you know, drastic as in we don't have to admit every patient with a query PE. However, that said, they still have to come in. They're still taking up time. There are still people admitted waiting for a CTPA because they're not unwell and the radiologist doesn't, radiologist doesn't want to do it overnight. Um, so it definitely could reduce the number of scans and the number of investigations and the number of, of bed days significantly. Brilliant. Don't worry, listeners. We're not going to go away from the, the D-dimer discussion. I'm going to carry on and stick to it like a sticky platelet. And I'm going to look at D-dimer levels to rule out venous thromboembolism during pregnancy. So the study I'm looking at is a systematic review and meta-analysis published in the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. Let's have a quick show of hands or who uses D-dimers in pregnant patients? Dave, do you? It'd be most interesting to hear your opinion on this. I, yeah. I do occasionally. Like, like with any test, it depends on my pre-test probability, um, which very much depends on the patient in front of me. But yeah, I'm I'm actually a fan of using them in the right patient. Um, and I usually do it with on discussion with the patient. And uh, yeah, I'm interested to see what you find in, in this study, because generally I think if it if you do a test that you're expecting to be positive anyway, then it's even more helpful when it comes back negative. John, you got any thoughts? Have you sort of heard any sort of... Uh... Not really. <laughs> what, it, what is up to date? <laughs> Tell me today. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Okay, like this is a hotly debated discussion with um with experts sitting on either side of the fence. The numerous studies um are mostly observational and respect retrospective, mostly haven't really helped so far. But interesting ones were the years trial with uh, adjusted D-dimer cutoffs for pregnancy. So here, if you had no symptoms and a D-dimer less than 1,000, you didn't need further investigation. But if you did have one or more of the year's symptoms, you can look them up when we've also previously discussed them. You use a D-dimer cutoff of 500. It looked good and worked well, but there were concerns that a small number of VTEs, immunothromboembolisms, could have been missed and it does need validation in larger cohorts. Then came the prospective and observational DIPEP, D-I-P-E-P study in 2018, which looked at VTE in pregnant and postpartum women. They concluded that D-dimers were not useful, but their observational data did not include risk stratification, as Dave was saying, and most patients were already on anticoagulant before the D-dimer was taken, which actually affects the results. So not very conclusive. Okay, so Barney, those are the, the sort of top trials that you picked out. Where are you up to with the meta-analysis? Great. Okay. So in this meta-analysis, which only included about four out of 660 possible studies, as the rest had to be excluded for because they had quite stringent inclusion criteria, they came up with some reassuring for me and useful data crunching. Their key points, the overall presence of a VTE in pregnant patients suspected of having one was between five and 9%. Pregnant lady comes in, you're suspecting a VTE, about five to 9% are going to have one. Remember, this figure in non-pregnant people is about 15 to 20%. So around 15% of non-pregnant patients who present with a possible VT actually have one. Yeah, yeah. Which probably, I don't think, surprise for some, sounds about right based on sort of the people I see. Overall, one third of pregnant patients with no clot had a negative D-dimer. 
This was obviously less as you, know, as you go through the trimesters. And interestingly, this figure actually varied massively between trials. So it's difficult to know what to take about it, but there was you know, a significant number of people who could have a negative D-dimer in pregnancy. Using an algorithm which included a low risk score and low D-dimer, the three-month thromboembolic risk was two in 981 or 0.2%. So just to clarify, using a low D, having a negative D-dimer and a low risk score meant that only two patients in 981 people actually ended up having a VT at three months. Putting all the data together, the pooled sensitivity for D-dimers in pregnant ladies across the studies was 99.5%, and the negative predictive value was 100%. Essentially, 100% of the time, a negative D-dimer meant no clot. Reassuring. Dave, does this help your practice? Is this, does this, is this going to reassure you for how you go about things? Well, I do enjoy when um, research supports what I was doing anyway, um, and I love being right. <laughs> but yeah, no, this I think this is this is really useful because, as you said, with the the papers that the single papers that have been used previously, they all have their question marks, and and so to meta meta analyze them like this is very useful. And I think this is just anything that uses your pretest probability uses a bit of, of um, Bayesian theory always makes me happy. And I think this is a, a really good use for, um, for that. So yeah, I, I'll continue to use, to use D dimers in the appropriate patients. Great. John, what you got for us? Well, this episode is really clotted up with studies about thrombosis. I saw this oh, trial God. in the BMJ and I really just got the, I don't know, just got sweats thinking about my time as a surgical FY1. So this paper goes out to all the foundation year doctors having a shit time trying to figure out the bridging protocol for a patient with a mechanical heart valve who's being discharged after a prostate resection and has an INR target of between 3.87 and 3.88. He needs to be bridged with low molecular heparin or deltaparin, but his second cousin has had hit and he can't self-administer because he's blind and the district nurse is on holiday in Newquay. Oh, Nuki. Nuki's fun. Um, John, <laughs> sounds like you're pretty traumatized. Do you, uh, do you need to talk to someone about this? Well, I think this trial, the Periop 2, is all the therapy I need. And man, is it cathartic. The question they ask is a really good one. What is the efficacy and safety of post-operative bridging treatment with low molecular heparin versus placebo in patients with AF or mechanical heart valves when warfarin is interrupted for a planned procedure? So don't, the only bridge I really need to worry about in the ED is the ones that people have fallen off. Um, and it's been a little while since I've had to do anything else. So can you just remind me what bridging is again? <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. So you normally hold warfarin uh, four to five days pre-procedure. And by procedure, I mean basically operation or any invasive procedure. And then it's resumed after the procedure on the same day. And deltaparin is given at therapeutic or prophylactic dose for three to four days um, both before the procedure and for a few days after the procedure until the INR is therapeutic. So you're basically covering someone with low heparin perioperatively. The idea is that you're trying to reduce their risk of perioperative thromboembolism. Thanks. Admittedly, it has been a little while since I was a surgical F1. Um, so what did they do in this trial? Yeah, so it was uh, sort of nice and simple. It was a double-blind placebo-controlled trial of about 1,500 patients, multi-center across 10 sites in Canada and India, and patients either had AF or a mechanical heart valve um, and were on warfarin, which was interrupted for a procedure. Uh, the procedures were basically elective non-cardiac surgery or some sort of invasive procedure that required holding of anticoagulation. They got randomized to either deltaparin or placebo after the procedure. Um, 821 were in the deltaparin arm and 650 the placebo arm. And in the Delta Parin arm, they either got prophylactic dose if they were deemed low risk or treatment dose if they had a kind of high risk of bleeding for a number of reasons. So just to clarify, they all had the bridging up until the procedure, but then they were randomized afterwards. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of a limitation of the study, really, which is that it only tells us about post-procedure bridging, uh, but still useful. Um, they followed up the patients for 90 days and they wanted to check for major thromboembolism that included kind of all the, you know, standard types of thromboembolism. The headline result is that there was no benefit observed with deltaparin bridging post-procedure compared to placebo. 
The major thromboembolism rate was 1.2% in the no bridging group and 1% in the bridging group. And this result was true within the subgroups of patients with AF and the subgroup of patients with mechanical heart valves. Great. So the days of bridging with Plexian or Daltaparin, as you seem to use, they're behind us? Uh, potentially. Uh, they almost are, but not yet, I think. I, I don't actually know what a lot of the bridging protocols are at the moment around the UK and how much they're being used, um, but I'm sure listeners might have picked up that this trial doesn't tell us a few things. First, as I've said, it can't tell us whether you need to bridge before the procedure, as everyone got bridging therapy. And second, you know, times have changed since 2007, uh, namely with there's sort of ubiquitous use of DOACs. Um, and we probably need to answer this question with DOACs. Um, although, you know, it's still very useful to know the answer to this question because there are still lots and lots of patients with warfarin, particularly those with mechanical heart valves. So the job of a surgical F1 just got a bit easier. Well, maybe, but you know, Dave, at the end of the day, they've still got to massage egos and pretend to care about, you know, hernia repairs. So I don't know, it's still quite a tough job. <laughs> I just remember, actually, I was a medical student and doing an operation and I was like, what are we doing today? And the, the consultant just turned to me and said, we're, we're doing a mesh repair. I was like, hmm, what's a mesh? <laughs> and um, yeah, gone were my days. Actually, an orthopedic consultant, I was like, so what do you want to do, Barney? Um, I don't know, maybe orthopedics. He's like, Barney, you don't know the difference between a tendon and a bone. You're not going to do orthopedics. So yeah, ba basically my surgical days were, were gone very quickly. Um, so there we go. But I do remember my F1 surgical times. I, I actually did a uh, project in fifth year of um, hernia repair in the UK. Oh, nice. That I was interested in hernias. <laughs> Dave was excited I went about to the European. I actually went to the European hernia association conference oh there's a, there's a european hernia association conference why are we we need to cover that on journal spotting day that's it next time we're all going where was it it was groundbreaking stuff it was groundbreaking stuff <laughs> <laughs> all right um probably moving away slightly from hernias i uh dave you've got some some really good ed bread and butter stuff for us go on tell us about it yeah, let's quickly step back into my ED wheelhouse, which is lower back pain. Dave, this is surely your raison d'etre as an ED physician. Oh, indeed. I love the smell of maxed out gabapentin doses in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a, a JAMA internal medicine paper that was assessing the effectiveness of an app-delivered, tailored self-management support system for adults with lower back pain-related disability. The system they were testing was basically an app that provides these weekly, individually tailored recommendations for your physical activity, so steps, um, strength and flexibility exercises, and daily educational messages. I like to think of them as motivational, like, you got this, your back doesn't suck, things like that. The primary outcome was the, the difference in improvement in a disability score at three months, and they decided that a clinically relevant difference was somewhere in the two to four point range. They found that at three months, the difference between the groups was actually less than one point in favor of the app, which is less than impressive, though they did find that overall, the, a whole 13% more patients in the app group managed to achieve an improvement of that more than four points in the disability score. Okay, so it doesn't sound hugely convincing, but there's some potential promise there. Yeah, so they concluded that the, the difference was small and of uncertain significance, and I'd certainly agree with that in this population. But I think it's worth mentioning that there's a couple of differences between the population that they've studied here and the cohort of back pain, certainly, that we see in the, the ED, and that I imagine makes it through to the medical take from time to time. Only 15% of these patients was recruited in a GP office. The rest were from a physio or a chiropractor or a back pain clinic. So this population wasn't our usual punter. I don't know whether they were more health literate and that's why they were being seen in more appropriate clinics rather than the ED or whether they were in less pain than the ones that we see in the ED or maybe it's just an entirely different um, healthcare system in Scandinavia and that's why this was happening. In addition, 58% of these patients have had pain for over 12 weeks already. And again, that's very different than the population that, that I'm seeing acutely. So maybe more acute back pain patients would benefit more from this sort of app so I think there could be potential for this sort of system in acute patients. Uh, I know that I always teach back acute back pain as being a much more uh, as being as much a patient communication exercise as it is a medical one. It's about teaching patients what to expect and the exercises they can do and things like that. 
Um, so we probably need an RCT for its use in true acute lower back pain patients once we've excluded Cauda syndrome, of course. Okay, great. Are you, you going to recommend it to your patients, Dave? Um, well, they had to also give them a, a step counter thing to wear, so I'm not sure I'm going to get the funding for that just yet. Just out of um, your own pocket. You're a consultant now. Just just hand them out, you know, <laughs> Fitbit to everyone. You know, one of the best ones, one of the nice ones. Okay. <laughs> you can't see it on the podcast, but I just did the make it rain. Oh, very thing. nice. Very nice. Yeah. You live in Australia and work there. Don't you do that all the time? Yeah. <laughs> Guys, I'm minted. <laughs> Guys, minted Australians. Anyway, good. Right. Let's move on. John, uh, you've got another paper for us and about smoking. Go ahead. Yeah. So if a highly contagious respiratory pathogen was not enough to motivate people to quit smoking, uh, I've got two articles that might help with the conversations that we have with patients when we're talking about smoking cessation. Uh, if you see patients with lung cancer who smokes and they carry on smoking after their cancer is diagnosed, it does seem obvious that they would be worse off than if they stopped smoking, right? Does that make sense? Uh, this just makes me think of a quote from Martin Sheen in The West Wing, and he was actually quoting this British broadcaster, Clement Freud. If you resolve to give up smoking, drinking, and loving, you're not actually going to live longer. It just seems like longer. So you're telling me this isn't true, but I heard it on TV, John. It must be. Yeah, well, specifically, if you heard on The West Wing, it's definitely true. It's so, definitely true. Yeah. Um, feel free to tune out of what I'm about to say. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but I think it's interesting, Jobs. I think, you know, we, we, as a respiratory physicians, we, we kind of, you know, we, we do say, oh, it's always beneficial, always beneficial to stop smoking. But yeah, when you've got that guy with a, a cancer, you're not even sure they're going to be, you know, survive mm. a few months. It's really difficult to convincingly say you should definitely stop smoking because it's going to help you when actually you don't know how long they're going to live even so yeah interesting to see what you say having read this article well certainly reading the start it seemed like one of those obvious questions that it's quite surprising we don't actually have a very good answer to most of the data to date on the effects of quitting smoking on lung cancer is based on retrospective studies or prospective studies with short follow-up so here we have this study from russia published in the annals of internal medicine and it seems apt that it was done in russia as the land of the czars was the highest has the highest smoking rate in europe and is the sec- the world's second largest tobacco market so who doesn't like a cigarette with their vodka i suppose i'm not sure that's the best public health message john but anyway what did the uh, what did the study do so they recruited 517 current smokers with non small cell lung cancer and followed them up for an average of 7 years the median pack years in the study population was 47, quite punchy. Roughly half stopped smoking and the other half carried on. And then they followed them up for seven years to see what happened. Adjusting for lots of potential confounders, they showed that quitters had a median survival of 6.6 years and non-quitters 4.8 years. So there's a survival advantage of about 22 months there. Okay, good stuff. I mean, you know, that's a relief and that seems to confirm what we're doing, what we're saying. Did it apply to like all subgroups and all people? Yeah, so the protective effect is seen in all patient subgroups and across tumor stages. Uh, there are a few caveats in that they try to adjust for confounders as much as possible, but there may be some unmeasured factor that could be driving this effect rather than the smoking. Yeah, of course. I mean, vodka, potentially, I don't know. Was that a thing? No, they, they did actually adjust for that. Um I think the analysis of this <laughs> study that caught my eye, not they didn't adjust specifically for vodka, they adjusted for alcohol consumption, just to be clear. Uh, the other thing I didn't see in the study is whether they could say whether the people were dying specifically. Well, they did check to see whether people were having cancer-related deaths or not. Um, but obviously this was still all based on sort of hospital um, documentation and things. So, it, you know, it could be that a lot, some were dying of cardiovascular disease in, instead. Um, I think the analysis of this study that caught my eye was that the authors note that the survival benefit is as good as some of the newer, really quite expensive anti-cancer drugs that are given in high-income countries. And, you know, this is a low-cost way to help patients with lung cancer live longer. So sure, try and get patients on treatments that are hard to pronounce and mean they have to travel to another oncology center, but also probably remember that simple things like smoking do actually make quite a big difference. I think that's a great point, John, actually. And I I like that. And that's really true, isn't it? For all the huge money on these cancer treatments, actually, if they just stopped smoking, they'd have a a similar sort of overall benefit. Um, And um, I'll probably use that in my next lung cancer clinic. So thanks very much. (laughs) What's What's the next smoking study you've got? Yeah, so there is kind of an urban or medical myth that smoking might reduce stress and other mental health symptoms like depression, anxiety, 
don't know if you guys sort of have heard that. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio has basically built a career of looking stressed and smoking intensely, but there are also quite a lot of reasons why smoking might worsen people's mental health, you know, such as having repeated bouts of frequent nicotine withdrawal on a kind of daily basis. So, so are you going to tell us, John, um, does smoking make mental health worse or better? Yeah. So this is a big uh, meta-analysis. It's actually a Cochrane review, um, which are just an absolute pleasure to read. I mean, they let, have you been on the Cochrane website? They just absolutely spell it out for you. It's fantastic. They, do, they make it so simple, don't they? I, it, yeah. It's great. Yeah. The reviewers searched literature and found 102 studies with 170,000 patients to see if stopping smoking had any effect on mental health. For all their primary outcomes, smoking cessation was associated with an improvement in mental health symptoms compared to people that continued. The effect was pretty small. And for anxiety, depression, and mixed anxiety and depression symptoms, there was low, very low, and moderate certainty evidence, respectively. But the point here isn't that smoking cessation improves people's mental well-being. The point is it doesn't, but crucially, it doesn't seem to make people's mental health any worse. So when we're counseling patients on quitting smoking, we can, based on this meta-analysis, reassure patients that it will not worsen their mood and may in fact improve things. And the evidence doesn't seem to support the idea that quitting smoking might aggravate any kind of underlying psychological disorders or make their depression or you know, schizophrenia worse. So I think pretty useful. I think it's very useful, John. Thanks for that. I think that's uh, a couple of things I have in my bag next to <laughs> cancer clinic or whatever, maybe respiratory <laughs> clinics was... Sometimes you patients will have their own excuses for not stopping. One, oh, well, I'm going to die anyway, doc. Two, oh, it makes me feel anxious when I'm, you know, stop smoking and things like that. So um, actually having these things under your belt are really useful. That's great. If we could get a little spike in listeners from your next lung cancer clinic, that'd be lovely. That'd be, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll put in that way. I'll share on the website. Um, thinking about other things which can make me spike my anxiety levels, and that is, high caffeine intake if i have too much coffee dave what have you got for us yeah so coffee consumption may have multiple beneficial properties it's got antioxidant anti-inflammatory and it's associated with reduced risk of cancer and diabetes and parkinson's disease and overall mortality and it's certainly my experience as it reduces the morbidity as it reduces the morbidity and mortality of those around me as anyone who has experienced me on a caffeine low will attest <laughs> okay, Dave. So convince us that we need another paper that looks at coffee consumption. What is so good about this one? Well, this paper is important for two reasons. Number one, it's really common that we advise our patients who've had uh, PACs or SVT or AF when they ask us how they can avoid recurrence. Our blanket statement is, "Oh, well, you could cut down on coffee," um, and then they'll say, "But we don't drink coffee." And you say, "Well, you could cut, cut down on chocolate that has caffeine in it." Oh, but I don't eat chocolate. Well, you probably looked at someone with a cup of tea and that's what caused it. So you should stop <laughs> looking at people with cups of tea. And Absolutely. the second reason is, <laughs> and the second reason is I bloody love coffee uh, and I get PACs. To the listeners, PACs, this isn't, this isn't Pac-Man. This is, what is it? Oh, I'm sorry for, for you non-ED folk. We, we specialize in our ECGs. It's premature atrial complexes. Thank so, you. <laughs> one of the one of the more common causes of of palpitations and it's that thing that tends to spark off svts but you don't want me to go down an, an svt ramble so this study looked at patients from the uk biobank which is this massive and detailed prospective study of over half a million participants in the uk that recorded extensive genetic details about the participants and followed them up for a wide range of health outcomes um, so this data is freely available to anyone who wants to perform legitimate scientific research. And these cardiologists from California used the data to answer the question, is coffee consumption actually associated with increased arrhythmias? Nice. Okay. So uh, Dave, what did they get up to with the UK's greatest export? It's genetic data. You're welcome world. Well, well, first I like to think that I'm the UK's greatest export, but I digress. <laughs> It's actually quite a clever study as they did it in two ways. So the first and probably easiest to explain uh, was that they looked at self-reported coffee consumption. And after adjusting for other confounders, uh, they looked at whether this was associated with a new diagnosis of arrhythmia during the follow-up period. And so after adjusting for co-founders, they find that each additional cup of coffee consumed daily was associated with a reduced risk of incident arrhythmia by 3%, 3% per cup. 
Sure. Okay. So we've got a benefit here, but I'm sure plenty of our journal spotting listeners might be rolling their eyes a bit and saying, well, what about all those confounders, Dave? Could they account for them? Well, I'm glad they asked that because it brings me to their second and far more complicated um, type of assessment, something called Mendelian randomization. And that required a couple of cups of coffee for me to get my head around. So apologies to any genetic statisticians that are in your listener base. And I'm sure there's plenty. uh, If the following is complete butchery of the concept. It's a research method that uses measured variation of genes that have a known function to examine the causal effect of a modifiable exposure on disease in observational studies. So in this case, they identify patients who genetically metabolize caffeine more quickly. And so therefore they suspected would have an increased caffeine consumption. And this does it in an objective way that mitigates against any conventional confounders. So then when they checked these genotypes that they were using against the data, they did find that it correlated to an increase in coffee consumption uh, in the participants. So then they checked the same genetic variants uh, against the incidence of arrhythmia, and they didn't find an association. So again, that confirmed their theory. Nice. Uh, We've talked about Mendelian randomization before on here, and it is bloody cool. Um, So just to confirm then, this looks like these two results mean that that double shot skinny mocha that you get every morning before you clock into another shift of triaging back pain is not actually causing your POCs. Is that right? So while I think it's maybe a bit much for us to say that caffeine is definitely protective against arrhythmia, uh, since as good as these methods are, it's still not RCT data. I think we can at least say that there's really an absence of evidence that caffeine is causing an increase in arrhythmias. And so for my practice, I'll probably stop giving it as blanket advice Uh, But I'll still advise patients that if they notice an association with with caffeine, then sure, they can cut down and and see if it helps. What do you guys think? Anyone for a cup of coffee? I think when I drink more than one cup of coffee, I get palpitations. (laughs) So whatever this Mendelian randomization says, um, to be fair, I'm not going to arrhythmia, but I do sort of, uh, I do feel the palpitations, but that is different. And I think it's interesting, isn't it? And it's also pretty reassuring for coffee drinkers that actually it's not going to send them into sort of you know, A&E with a tachycardia or SVT at 200 beats per minute or anything, which is pretty good. It's pretty nice. Okay, brilliant. And so on to, I've got another paper, uh, which I think is quite interesting. So it answers quite a vital question. Um, what is the best central venous access to use for patients receiving systemic anti-cancer therapy? And then this question really does matter because if you think of the number of people that are getting chemotherapy every year in England, uh, between 27 and 2017 and 2018, it was almost 200,000. So the decision around what central venous catheter to put in to deliver chemotherapy does matter. This trial compared three forms of central venous access, which is indicated when there's greater than three months of chemotherapy required. They looked at Hickman lines, that's a kind of tunneled catheter, PICK lines, which are peripherally inserted central catheters, and ports, often referred to as portocaths, which are totally implanted under the skin, and they typically go into the superior vena cava. Anyone unclear about the three, uh, we will put a link in the show notes to get an image of them. But basically, the most important thing is the port is is fully tunneled, whereas the Hickman line and the PICK line come up to the skin surface. That's interesting, John. Um, uh, just out of interest, do they use, generally, uh, is one used more than others? I haven't really got a feel for it. So apparently there's been a rise in the use of pick lines recently as they can be inserted easily, removed by nurse-led teams, and they avoid neck structures on insertion. And apparently they appear to be cheaper. But the evidence base for their widespread use isn't really there. So this is the largest trial to compare picks, Hickman's, and ports. And the first one that compares all three. They took adults receiving systemic anti-cancer therapy for solid or hematological malignancies from different oncology units around the UK, and they randomized patients to one of the three lines. The primary outcome was complication rate, which was things like infection, thrombosis, inability to aspirate, or mechanical failure. Okay, so it's a three-horse race, Hickman, Pick, Port, and which one is safest? Um, I've got my own sort of ideas about this, but what, what did the results show? So each line was compared to the other two. Um, The main result really is that ports reduce the adverse event rate by approximately 50% compared with both Hickman and PICS. Compared to PICS, ports had a complication rate of 32% compared with 47% for PICS. Between PICS and Hickman, there was little difference in terms of complications. Okay, well, that's interesting. 
So support ports sound like they're superior, um, but there's a couple of important things to consider, aren't there? Um, yeah, I, I imagine they're probably more expensive and do patients actually want a, you know, a tunneled indwelling sort of catheter like that? Yeah, very important questions. Um, so ports are more expensive um, in total, but after actually you allow for the dwell time of the device, there was no difference between PICS and Hickman's, presume because if a PIC line gets more complications, you probably have to move it and put one back in, making it more expensive. Um, ports do require a radiology suite and probably theatre to put them in, so they're a bit more labour intensive. Um, but regarding quality of life, they use a device-specific quality of life measurement that showed that there was patient preference for ports over the other two. Yeah, I can see that. Okay. You know, generally speaking, they don't let us take bloods out of them either, which is always annoying when they get admitted into hospital. But anyway, um, do you think they, uh, a change in guidance is coming? I mean, there certainly is very good evidence that ports is probably the best um, central access for um, systemic anti-cancer therapy. And certainly the authors recommend a change in guidance. But it's going to be a challenge to change service delivery to be able to offer these devices to more people and faster um, but you know, that is what the trial suggests should really be best practice. So maybe it's up for health services to change. We'll see. We'll see. That's interesting. Thanks, John. Cheers. Um, and we'll see how that pans out in the next months. Right, guys, I have something extraordinarily groundbreaking for you. Chronic constipation is troublesome and has multiple causes. So you two, what dietary advice would you give to people to help them open their bowels a little bit more? I had a uh, surgical registrar that I worked with when I was an FY1 who used to tell everyone to walk down the stairs in the hospital to the Costa Coffee and then walk back because the espresso and walking up and down stairs would make them poo. He was Italian, predictably. Brilliant. Did he also offer a cigarette? That's why I said before, <laughs> like coffee and a fag, early morning coffee and a fag. And Famously your... good for wound healing. <laughs> Dave, did, did you have anything? <laughs> I had a, a friend of mine, a radiology reg who lives over here. She'd had a recent knee procedure and she was given lots of opiates. And then she texted me one morning going, I can't poo. What would you do? She didn't have any, any of the, the laxes in the house. So I was like, get every piece of fruit you have. Have you got fruit? She was like, yeah, I've got grapes. I've got, I was like, great. Just eat all the grapes and drink two pints of water. And a couple of hours later, I got a text going, that worked. Thank you. <laughs> See you again next time you're in England. Well done. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Um, yeah, equally, yeah, all these are all right. I think my, my experience is more like children, which is mashing up things like prunes um, and putting them in their drink to help them if they feel you know, when they're really small. Um, so this was an interesting study, and this compared prunes, espagula, and kiwis. You know, and that's two kiwis a day, in fact, in 75 patients who usually had less than three complete stools per week. Um, and an increase in one or more motion per week was deemed a success. Um, so there we go. That's what we're aiming for in life. Glad to hear all the treatments worked. And they all worked about equally with a significant improvement in constipation. And people were generally less bloated and more satisfied with kiwis than other treatments. And there we have it, guys. And you know what? This might actually change my practice just that little bit. I might actually start suggesting kiwis to all my bunged up patients. My main question, this is a question again to you guys, is did they eat the kiwi with the furry skin on or off? All right, and then what do you two do? Is, is that even an option? <laughs> it is an option. Yeah. Do you know, I eat it with the skin on most of the time, and I presume you I'm getting more fiber that me. way. <laughs> you disgust me. Tell yeah. you what, though, this, this rings true to my personal experience in that my son, Dexter, loves kiwis, and I guarantee you it, it increases his bile action. And you can smell it on the way out. There's something extra for your listeners. There we go. Anecdotal and scientific. These journal junkies are getting old. Thank you so much. Um, Dave, do you want to finish us off with a, a highly, another highly important and very relevant study? So yeah, this is a kind of important trial for you guys, just as it was to Andy and myself when we covered it on the Archem Learning podcast uh, back in August. Do people learn anything from medical podcasts, or at least from the good ones? So 90% of emergency medicine residents in the US report listening to podcasts on a regular basis. And I'll reuse my Archem Learning joke when I say that with certainty that 100% of people listening right now have listened to a medical podcast. It's just nice to be able to say something with certainty for once when I'm talking about evidence-based medicine. 
That's a good stat. It's a good stat, Dave. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Confidence interval. Hundred percent. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. So most of us listen to podcasts while we're doing other things. For me, it's driving. I listen to a medical podcast on the way to work, gets my noggin into the, the right frame of mind before I hit the shop floor. And then I literally listen to anything else on the way home to get myself out of that medical mode. So what about you chaps? When are you getting your listening done? This is going to sound mental, but when I'm cycling, is that, is that okay? I feel like I've always got my head. Okay, John. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it's not okay. Especially in yeah, no, I think it's people different, like you it? that keep our trauma center in business, John. So you keep oh, it up. Jesus. You keep it up. I think driving anytime I'm driving, I don't drive that much, but anytime I'm driving, um, I try to get some medical podcast on. Otherwise it's anytime when I haven't got my children and um, children sort of running around me, which is, which is becoming increasingly difficult, I must say. Um, but yes, commuting is the main time. And I think that's the case for most people. But the, the question is, does this multitasking or divided focus take anything away from the learning experience? And this study from the Annals of Emergency Medicine looks at just that. So participants were randomized to listen to a 30-minute podcast, either while driving or while just sitting in a room. And then they crossed over. And so the driving ones would then um, sit in a room and listen to a podcast and vice versa. They then tested immediate recall with a test within 30 minutes of listening to each podcast and then delayed recall uh, with another test a month later with a set of specifically developed questions. I'm just going to butt in here, Dave, and say that before you reveal the results, if this shows that podcasts in any way don't offer a benefit, we're just going to bleep out the next few lines, yeah? Or just cut Dave out from the entire podcast. Yeah, just going to warn you. Probably safer. Carry on. You you might want to do that anyway, in fairness. (laughs) (laughs) So you'll be pleased to know that while there was a significant 6.5% difference in the perceived knowledge retention between the two groups that favored sitting in a room. So emergency medicine residents thought if they were just sitting quietly listening to it, they would do better. There was no actual difference in the knowledge retention on either the immediate or the delayed tests. So the stat to remember is that the delayed retention score for both groups was 52%. So that's the best that we can hope that anybody is taking home from this podcast today. I wonder what that will 52% will be from this. But anyway, great. Um, I'd say that this is a pretty good result for us as podcasters. But I always stress that podcasts such as the Archem Learning one or yourselves at Journal Spotting or actually any FOMED in general, we aren't aiming for 100% retention of information. We're here to point you to things that we find interesting, to share our thoughts and ideas. And it's up to you to go and read more uh, about the topics for yourself and cement the knowledge that way. And also, since your listeners aren't taking part in a randomized study, they can increase retention by listening to your voices again and again and again. I'm sure they just listen to it on repeat. It's one of those things, you know, you're on Spotify, you can press that button, which is like repeat one and just keeps going and going and going. I'm pretty sure that's what they're going to do with this one. Lovely, Dave. That's brilliant. And it's a great article, actually. I think it's, um, uh, yeah, it's interesting. And I don't know, as you say, quite relevant and quite reassuring. Makes me want to keep doing podcasts, which is always, always a good sign. John, Dave, thank you so much. We've gone through a huge amount and there are so many articles to pick. And actually, we've, um, we've covered some absolute belters and some really interesting facts, figures and practice changing tips. So. So where we're up to now is uh, so deciding on what our top practice changing tip is from the episode, from what we discussed. Dave has our fantastic guest from Australia. And I can see in the background, your your light has got from dark to light. So morning has just happened as we've been speaking. What was your practice changing tip from what we discussed? Well, to be fair, there's clearly tons. But actually, I think the smoking cessation advice for the lung cancer patients because like I said, like it's, it's not infrequent that I see it. Um, and you know, it's nice to have some evidence behind actually giving some advice to these, these people. So I think that's probably going to affect my practice. Brilliant. Thanks Dave. Yeah. And John, what about yourself? I actually think the, for me, age adjusted D dimers are just because I think that they need to come in sooner rather than later. And it's really nice to have a trial that is just backing that up and, um, just trying to cement their place as part of day-to-day practice really. Great. For me, I think um, I've enjoyed all the D-Diamond talk because, as Dave was saying, it's great to have evidence backing up what you already do. But apart from that, I think, um, you know, some really interesting things we've talked about. I think uh, I like the idea that uh, we can tell patients that not to worry too much if they're drinking too much coffee and it shouldn't cause any arrhythmia. But I think the, the this um, evidence about 
bridging is going to be oh, it's going to be great for so many people if we don't mm. have to bridge them. It actually makes no benefits. It's going to save money, time, bed days, yeah. all the rest of it, and it's potentially practice changing. So, lovely folks. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Have a fantastic day in Australia. Um, thank you, John. Sleep well. And thank you. you. You certainly need it after your stag do. I haven't told you about my Matt Hancock tattoo, by the way. Forgot to mention. Where is it? For another podcast. (laughs) Can you give us a hint on the body whereabouts? I can't show you. You can't show me. Oh, that's amazing. Well done. (laughs) Lovely, guys. Have a fantastic evening and day. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Thanks, guys. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Special thanks to promotion team Abby and Isabel, logo designer Natalia Florman, and animations expert Costa. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.